welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope. This is where you get to hear how to feel happy, balanced, and worthwhile. How to make that lonely ache vanish and feel empowered, confident, and secure. I'm Lauren Abrams, and I get to help you feel that magic again since going through my own dark night of the soul by chatting with incredible leaders, healers, and change agents who give us their messages of hope after overcoming challenges of their own. And today we're talking to writer, teacher, and entrepreneur, Joey Klein. Are you feeling out of alignment with your intuition, your truth, or your dreams? Are you ready to level up your life and get rid of limiting beliefs? You're going to love hearing Joey today. His inner matrix system mixes ancient traditions and modern brain science, helping you rewire and train your brain, your thoughts, and nervous system. You get to rewire and align your emotions to create the results of your dreams, align with who you're called to be. Joey's worked with over 80,000 individuals at least, and the highest level CEO He's the author of the Inner Matrix books, and you get to hear him today give you common sense tools to live your best life right now. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope, Joey. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks. I've heard a lot of good things about you from a very good friend of mine. She just loves you. So I have a question. You're this huge international award-winning martial artist by the age of 14. And at a very young age, you were speaking at the UN Peace Corps. What led you to study the neurology of the brain? That just seems to be definitely not a straight line, generally speaking. Yeah, no, for sure. So I actually dove into a lot of the studies around a lot of the ancient wisdom traditions, Taoist meditation, Hindu meditation, things of this nature. I actually spent months at a time, eight hours a day, you know, meditating in Kashi, you know, out in India and, and things of this nature. At what age did you already start? I started traveling in my early 20s. So like probably around 22, 23, when I was doing like in-depth studies around meditation and things of that nature. And back then, I mean, this is 20 years ago. So it wasn't fad. It wasn't popular the way it was today. If you told somebody that you did like meditation of any kind, they kind of looked at you like you had horns in your head still, right? They were like, what are you talking about? Right. And so I did that and noticed profound results for myself in terms of, you know, emotional training in essence. And I really want to understand why that worked. And I met a Harvard trained neurologist who really taught me the brain science behind why these inner methods and trainings were as effective as they were and, and what the breath work was doing and so on and so forth. And so that's what got me kind of you know, into the whole neurology of thing and interested there. Yeah. Now I think I've been meditating pretty close to that, but I didn't go study the brain so that, and I didn't learn about breathworks till I started my podcast, which is fascinating. Yeah. I love breathwork. So keep going. So here you start studying the brain and everything and I'll let you keep going because I'm fascinated by this. So what really started me in my journey was just a lot of pain, right? I remember I was in my second year of college and I was on the Dean's List my first semester. So I was doing well. Second semester, I got heavy into drugs and alcohol and partying. And I remember just thinking like, what do I want to do with myself? Who do I want to become? Like, what job do I want? And I had no idea. And ultimately I dropped out my second year of college to basically, you know, invest in my hobby of my full-time partying essentially. And I got so out control that it was real clear that if I kept up, you know, the way I was living, I, I probably wouldn't be around in a year because I was up to some really unsafe behaviors and things of this nature. And that's what kind of drew me to studying meditation in the first place was like, what's the formula to happiness? What's the formula to know peace and fulfillment in one's life? And I grew up watching, you know, Kung Fu Legend Continues. And I remember in that TV series way back in the 80s, right? You know, you went to the mountains for healing and for meditation and to find peace. And so, you know, I got an invitation, you know, to kind of go to Crestone, Colorado, where I met a mentor and that, you know, kind of taking me all over the world. In essence, I just got hungry. And if it had to do with 
personal development that had to do with personal growth, I really threw myself into it. And so, you know, it kind of got me into four primary areas. One was, you know, meditation and kind of these ancient wisdom traditions. Two was the science behind like, why does all this stuff work? Neurology and neuroplasticity and epigenetics, et cetera. And then that kind of led me into psychology. I had a mentor in, in psychology and then ancient martial arts. So like traditional martial arts was kind of where I found my answers. What's epigenetics? So epigenetics is kind of the science of how information is essentially passed down. So as an example, you know, I have a Jewish history, right? My parents were Jewish and my great grandparents, et cetera. And so, you know, they've done studies where like, if you have grandparents or great grandparents who were in concentration camps, how like that trauma gets passed down, the emotional patterns or imprints get passed down. They did this around the events of 9-11 as well, where mothers whom were pregnant and were, you know, around the world trade centers or were in that environment, you know, when all the things went down during 9-11 that went down, that was a high stress scenario. And what they saw when they kind of did a study on the children who were born was that they had a predisposition to things like anxiety and things of that nature. And so what it showed was like, hey, you know, our ancestors, when they kind of live, give information to us through our DNA and our RNA that we inherit. And so sometimes we might have some fear, some panic or anxiety, or like, why in the world is this here? And it may literally have nothing to do with your current reality and world. It might actually have gotten passed down, you know, from your ancestors. So epigenetics is this idea of how information gets passed down through genes, which has a lot to do with personal development. If we're looking to access joy and we don't know that's even a thing, right? Yeah. Okay. And I have like 5 million questions from that. <laughs> I mean, I just keep thinking, oh my gosh, all the kids from now with after the pandemic or what about the war in Ukraine, which is totally off subject here, but you just think sure. there's always going to be something, right? And that can give kids anxiety. So how do you get rid of passed down anxiety genes <laughs> because you could say, okay, that's one genetic group. Well, I think the thing is, right, like there's so many people when they have something going on for themselves and they're living with some kind of, you know, pain or discomfort, like maybe depression or anxiety, overwhelm or sadness, the kind of impulse is to go, well, why is this here and where did it come from? And we start looking for reasons as to why we feel the way we do. And in many cases, or I'd say a lot of cases, that search for why it's there ends up accidentally reinforcing the thing that we're wanting to shift or change or the experience that we want to get out of. And so, you know, the best way to really change it is not to focus on it at all, but start to focus on accessing experiences that we want to have, such as joy or peace or fulfillment, et cetera. And that really does answer for things that we might've inherited or, you know, things that we might be managing for some time because the brain is very plastic. And so, you know, we can kind of teach our nervous system where we want it to perform if we know how. Well, I was taught why doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter why that I have to feel my feelings. Don't deny your feelings. You have to feel them, feel where they are in my body and things like that, which might be completely different than the matrix, your system. But I don't know if why doesn't matter for you in your system or not, but, yeah. and I don't know if that has to do, it almost sounds like manifestation, you know, where you like, you picture where you want to be, which is the same as I was taught as an undergrad with speech class. Imagine yourself giving a perfect speech or the Olympic athlete that pictures themselves going down the hill, skiing perfectly and do it, you know, whatever their athleticism feat is to do it perfectly. So I don't know if, what would somebody say, well, is that just denial to not ask why? 
Uh-huh. Well, I think, I think we have to understand what we're looking for, right? So I train, yeah. you know, in my work, I train a lot of psychologists and I actually train a lot of therapists. And, you know, what a lot of traditional therapy does really well is pattern recognition. And so, hey, let me help you identify how you feel. And then let's talk about why this maybe is there, right? Like what environment did you grow in or what did you inherit from your parents or how were they with you, et cetera. One of my mentors said to me, which makes so much sense to me is an awareness of why something is there does not lead to the transformation of it, right? The awareness that something is there doesn't necessarily change or transform it either. And so we really need to understand what are the things that we must do in order to produce the results that we want to have. And so it's not just about positive thinking, although that can be very helpful in terms of imagining the outcome of the result we want to achieve. And that can definitely start moving us in that direction. But we really do need to understand like how the nervous system works and how do we get inside of some practical techniques that literally give us access to feeling joy or peace, not just thinking about feeling joy or peace. Okay. So what are some tools that anybody listening can do? Yeah. So I think that like, as you were speaking of before, right, feeling emotion is where it all starts because we got to know where we are. And it's interesting because we live with our stuff every day, but many people, you know, they may not even know that they feel sad or they feel angry or they feel overwhelmed, right? They're just kind of getting through their day. And the key, like if we notice ourselves in some of those states, it's a sympathetic response as, as far as the brain is concerned. And so our fight or flight mechanisms are on. And so the first step is really to get those calmed down so that we can start Start getting a parasympathetic response, which is responsible for joy, peace, serenity, etc. And so, literally, if we can just stimulate the nervous system in the appropriate way, you know, the byproduct of that is those enjoyable experiences and feelings that we'd all love more access to. And you know, two simple ways to kind of get started is take note of where we are, like how are we feeling, and then step two, you know, old adage, right? Like breathe deep and like just truly taking a deep breath, you know, through the nose, not through the mouth. And if you touch the tongue to the palate or roof of your mouth, as you take that gentle, but deep breath in through the nose, you stimulate the vagus nerve in the back of the throat. And it sends a signal to the brain that like everything's okay. And it signals to turn on that parasympathetic response. And if we take that deep breath in through the nose until our lungs are completely filled, and then, you know, gently exhale air out of the nose until all of the air is out of the lungs, focusing on the abdomen as best you can and do that for three or four breath cycles while relaxing the body, generally it's going to induce a calming effect. I feel calmer just listening to you talk about it. (laughs) The breathing in slow breath. I can remember the pediatricians telling my kids this, which is kind of incredible because it's true. I think even putting a fake smile tells the brain it releases certain endorphins that tells Mm -hmm. the brain that there's no danger or that you can relax. It's a way to like fake it till you make it, that whole thing. Like even if you're not feeling happy and you stick a smile on your face, it does something right there. It's one of the ways to make you feel better. Absolutely. For me, it's like, I think of it more as training as opposed to like fake it till you make it. It's like, hey, if I don't smile as a normal way of being, like when I often, you know, encourage people to smile, right? When I train them, they say, yeah, but it just doesn't feel natural. I said, well, that's why you need to do it. That's why it's important, right? (laughs) And the only reason it feels unnatural is because you don't smile on a regular basis basis. And so it's often the simple things that are the most powerful in inducing a state change or an experience change for ourselves. So definitely like smiling consistently throughout the day can create a sense of joy. And we literally start training joy, you know, by putting our position in the postures that represent these experiences we want to have. Okay. So another thing that 
I was told that you teach. I was taught that feelings peak for five minutes. So I think I can lean into anything that's uncomfortable for five minutes, but I was taught that you teach feelings last for 90 seconds. And it's the stories that we feed the feelings that make them last longer. But 90 seconds is way better. (laughs) So can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, scientists have studied the neurology of an emotion. And so the neurology of a fear-based emotion is 90 seconds or less. And so what that means is the regions in the brain responsible for fear-based states, such as anxiety, sadness, shame, guilt, resentment, anger, and so on. If there's no thought in the mind, like we're not thinking about something, or we're not in an environment of hostility, 90 seconds or less the brain turns off and those fight or flight, you know, symptoms of emotion will dissolve. And on the other side, however, love-based states that are more associated with the parasympathetic nervous system, such as love or joy, peace, serenity, et cetera, those really have an indefinite lifespan because if we're not thinking about anything and there's no stimulus, our natural state is a love-based state from a brain perspective, that parasympathetic nervous system. And so because of modern society, a lot of us are in this constant low stress state by way of interacting with cell phone and the scroll on the social media feed and, you know, wondering about the kids and then getting through the workday and, and, you know, back home, you know, making dinner for the family and just sort of, we're always in this on state. And so we've kind of hijacked our systems in a way and we're asking it to do something that it really isn't designed to do. So if we get back to like what our nervous system is inherently designed to do, 90 seconds or less, we're out of that fear-based state unless we're worried about something. You know, you think about some bad event might occur or you're afraid of painful event reoccurring occurring, that thinking will re-stimulate that fear-based, you know, emotion and keep it alive. Okay. So then how do you keep yourself from going into that fear-based thinking? Yeah. So in essence, uh, you know, the easy answer is training, right? Like something that I didn't realize, you know, before I got really into this work was that I was trained and conditioned to be the way I was. Right. And I didn't think of it as training and conditioning because it just sort of was what I absorbed from my environment, you know, watching my parents and watching society and, you know, the environment that I grew up in and so on. I just kind of took that on. But reality is there was a conditioning, right? There was a reinforcing from that environment and sort of mimicking the things that were around me, right? Like my family was not emotionally intelligent, right? There's a lot of anger in my house and a lot of, you know, resentment and, you know, a lot of fear and things of that nature. And so I absorbed that. Like that's kind of what I started acting out like in my early teens teenage years, you know, was my environment. And I didn't think of that as like a conditioning and training at the time, but then I was taught by my mentors and people that I studied with, you know, how you can train and condition, you know, higher states, right. Such as, you know, love and joy, et cetera. And so we really got to focus on three key things, right. Training, aligning and rewiring emotions, thought strategies, and the nervous system, because each of those plays a role. And so on one level, you know, if we do that deep breathing, we can center, we can feel calm. But then on the next step, we have to give the mind something to focus on to reinforce those higher states. We have to, you know, like we often hear about a gratitude practice. That's a very simple thing to do, right? If we're focused on what we're grateful for, then we're not sad, right? Or inspiration, right? If I know a vision that I want to fulfill, I know outcomes that I want to achieve for myself. If I focus on those outcomes and I think about achieving them, that's going to activate inspiration as I think. And so we have to train the mind to think in a particular way to reinforce the emotions that we want to feel. And we have to condition the nervous system to sort of operate from that parasympathetic response and work with each of those three things together, you know, with a little bit of consistency over time. 
okay, so you start studying the brain and you studying with one person. How did you first start this? Did you write the book? How did you get started? So I got started because my mentor threatened me, to be honest. <laughs> my meditation mentors and my spiritual mentors, my martial arts mentors, and even the mentor I had in psychology, Dr. Liu, you know, they said, Joey, you know, it's important that you start sharing what I'm teaching you. And I thought, I don't want to teach. I just want to learn this for myself and get myself figured out. And they said, well, the best way to learn is to teach. Like that's going to accelerate your path. And they said, and if you want to keep, you know, studying with me privately and you want to be in this kind of like mentorship, you have to teach, you have to pay it forward. And if you don't, like, I'm not going to teach you. And I was like, and I had three different mentors literally tell me this in the same month, right? They didn't know each other. So I was kind of like nudged into it, if you will. And I remember I asked my mentor, I said, how do I start? I don't even know how to teach. And they said, just start sharing what you're learning from me and just charge for that because you need to learn how to take care of yourself, you know, because at this point in my life, I was real happy because I was like a wandering gypsy. It, you know, a little bit nomadic and, and had no place to live, couldn't afford anything, but I was happy. I was fulfilled. I thought I was doing great, you know, like, like a hippie. And so, you know, they said, well, just pick a price. And I thought, well, what do you mean pick a price? And they said, well, just pick a price that you think is worth, you know, what you've learned from me. And I remember I picked 250 an hour and I had a lot of people asking me for advice or, or kind of like asking me what was going on because they saw changes in me. And so I just started like basically saying like, hey, I'll take an hour and I'll share with you what I'm learning. And, you know, I had this price point of 250 an hour. And inside of a year, a little over a year, I had about 88 people that I was working with one-on-one. -on -one. Inside of a year and a half or two years, I had a wait list of about 200 people and just couldn't, I didn't have enough hours to work with everybody. And they kept asking me like, Hey, I want my friend to do this with you. Or I want my family member to do this or my colleague at work. Like, how can we give them access? And actually my clients were asking me to start teaching like some kind of workshop or seminar that they could invite family and friends to. So that's how I started teaching weekend programs, you know, and I do 40 of them, you know, a year all over the United States. I used to teach in Japan and Europe, but I just do the United States now. And then people from my seminars, it was kind of the same thing. They started saying, well, you know, obviously this is making such a difference for us, but you know, so-and-so can't afford to come here and they live in another country. So, you know, they can't take off work or things like this. Like, will you write a book? And I was like, no, I don't want to write a book. There's no part of me wants to write a book. So after people literally asked me for years, you know, to write a book, to give more people access, that's why I ended up, you know, writing The Inner Matrix it was really because the people I was supporting and serving, you know, basically asked me to do so. So I kind of found my way into all of this, the opposite of most people where, I really wasn't interested in helping anybody to be quite sincere. And it wasn't something that I was like passionate, excited to do. It was more like I saw a need and I found my greatest fulfillment by way of serving and supporting other people. And the people I was serving pointed out these other needs and asked me to satisfy them was what kind of led me to the next step and the next step and the next step. I've read where you said that you were told you can get sleep when you're dead or something uh -huh. like that. And you got physically like really sick. I was taught no one ever died from lack of sleep because I reached a point where I was like, yeah, I might, I don't know, <laughs> you know, like, and sleep's the new superpower. I mean, people talk about how you need sleep. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So for years when I was, you know, I was studying and that really was my core. Like I've just always been hungry. I'm still obsessive about personal development. Like I'm always asking the question, you know, how do we eliminate suffering as quickly as possible? And what is the formula to create lives better than we could possibly imagine? And those same two questions have really driven me now for over 20 years. And my martial arts master and the spiritual, you know, mentor that I had both basically told me sleep is unnecessary, right? You can sleep when you're dead. And, you know, when I was studying full time, I was training full-time and I was building a business, you know, kind of building my practice and, you know, started to teach seminars and made this into a business, which needed more and more and more of my time. It was just like, I ran out of time in the day. So I would just sleep maybe four hours a night. 
you know, on a good night. And I did that in my early twenties for years. And then I ended up in bed for two years and made myself really, really sick, basically from just driving so hard. And then I had to rebuild myself, I had to repair myself. And based on everything that I know about the body today and performance, if you're getting less than, you know, seven-ish hours of really solid sleep each night, you're working against yourself. Like you just can't perform at your highest levels if you're not giving the body time to rest and rejuvenate. Rest is training, essentially. Rest is recovery. Yeah. People talk about that now, but I don't remember ever hearing that before. Oh yeah. But now it's like the more we understand about the brain, the nervous system, like how this all, all works, what actually goes on, you know, when we sleep, we just realize that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, right? Health, well-being, vitality, performance. It's not a sprint. It's not about like trying to get everything you can get done in a year or two. It's like, Hey, let's set the pace and let's see what we can do in 20 years. Because you know, what I think I can accomplish in a year or six months, I usually, you know, grossly overestimate. Like, I think I can do more than I can, but when I've looked at, you know, a decade out and I thought what I might be able to achieve, and I kind of set those longer term goals, I tend to far exceed the things I think I'll be able to do over the long term. So the further out we can go and the more we kind of, you know, look to a pace we can just maintain kind of like a marathon runner that really is the best formula. Yeah, definitely. So what's the hardest challenge that you've overcome in your life and how'd you do it? You just keep coming. <laughs> Every time I look to play a bigger game, there's always an interesting challenge. But I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges that I had was I, I was working with one of my mentors and we were very close. And the company started very intimate, you know, and I was building my company and they were building theirs. And I started just supporting them inside of the work they were doing. because I was very grateful for everything. They kind of gave back to me and supported building a multi-million dollar company kind of from the ground up. And I got extricated, right? I got kicked out, so to speak. Fire would be the word for it. And I remember just feeling like betrayed and let down and, you know, also like angry and, you know, all the things that come with that, you know, investing years of your life and all these types of things. And I remember, you know, in the midst of all those emotions, I remember stopping and going, well, wait a minute, like, where am I going? What's my vision? What's my outcome? And that really didn't change. It was really the same thing. It was like, hey, how do I serve people to eliminate suffering? And how do I serve people to know lives better than they ever could have imagined? And I said, that hasn't changed. And so it was interesting because once I kind of, you know, got out of those negative feelings that can occur, those fear-based emotions, and I stopped and really focused on what I want to achieve, it became very clear that wasn't a fit, right? It really didn't, that vehicle didn't support who I wanted to become and what I want to achieve and at the level in which I was capable of doing it. And when I look at it now from where I am, there's no way I could have fulfilled on what I have today if I was still trying to like, you know, parcel my time between the two different realities and going all in on one reality, you know, was much better fit. And so, you know, learning to sort of, you know, accept that I can control and I can do everything that I can and then accept the outcomes, you know, whatever they are, whatever I think they are, good, bad, or indifferent, and just stay the course toward where I want to go. And that's really just never failed me. It's always worked out. Oh, that's good. I really like that. So who are your mentors now? My primary mentors today are, you know, a lot of my mentors have actually recently passed away. So I've had long-term mentorships. My mentors that I studied with, you know, Dr. Lou from LA, I studied with her for 16 years. She unfortunately died in her eighties of cancer just about a year ago. My martial arts master, you know, was in his same thing. He was, he was close to in his eighties and passed away, you know, a little over two years ago. I had a spiritual mentor that kind of went into seclusion. So they're not 
not really working with people anymore and same with my martial arts master. And so today I really just study as much as I can. So whether it has to do with business or personal development, whatever it may be, I'm just an avid reader, avid studier of anything that's out there. And, you know, I feel like, you know, 20 years of intensive study with my teachers, I've gotten to a place where I rely on those systems that I learned pretty well and become pretty good at being self-reliant. Yeah, no, I understand. Plus reading. What's the most common question that you're asked? When I work with people, I think the the number one request people have is, can you support me to find my significant other? Can you help me find that romantic relationship, that love life? And then number two on the list is is money. Can you help me build wealth? (laughs) Finance and romance, always the same, right? Oh my gosh, I would never have thought that. That is so funny. Really, those are the most common questions. It's still the finance and romance, no matter where you go. Yeah, those are the top two that I hear from everybody. Can you help me find my significant other? And can you help me make more money? And what I found through the years is I always say yes. I say, absolutely, we can do that. And sure enough, like there's a method, like you can follow a strategy to make either of those things happen. It's all find job, right? It's so true, right? Like it's just really like usually looking for is like, oh, I want to be in a relationship because I feel a bit lonely or sad or, you know, a little bit unfulfilled. And I feel like, hey, if I have this person in my life, like that's going to make that better, right? Same thing with money. You know, if we feel like a little bit unsuccessful or we feel, you know, shame or guilt or unworthy or something like that, it's like, well, if we make more money, then I'll make it then it'll all be okay, right? So we say yes, you know, and we do that. Like I've supported people, you know, great wealth and dozens of people I've supported to become millionaires and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is the millions don't make you happy. And the truth is a relationship doesn't either. Because if we think about it, like when you're first in a new relationship, you feel excited and like, it's all wonderful. And then seven, eight, months you know into the relationship you're looking for someone to help you (laughs) yeah exactly so if you don't manage the inner game even if you get the thing you think you want it doesn't provide you what you hoped it would so even in the event we aspire to some things which is awesome still got to dial in your emotion your mind at the end of the day that is so funny that I would never have guessed that's it. Okay, so a couple of things. The four-sided breath that you talk about, because that's such a simple tool. And you kind of talked about it in the beginning with the breathing, but mm-hmm. I thought that was a really good blog post. Anybody who's listening and all of Joey's links and everything, of course, will be on the website. But you want to talk really quickly what the four-sided breath. It's a simple breath to do. And it's probably one of the most effective tools that I teach, you know, and I train people inside of, you know, my ex- executive coaches, my, you know, fortune 100, 500 execs or pro athletes, right? Entrepreneurs. The number one way they manage stress is through that four-sided breath because literally it trains the nervous system. And so it's simple to do. All you do is, you know, you touch your tongue to the roof palate of your mouth, a gentle smile on your face, like we talked about earlier. And you want to focus all your attention on your lower abdomen, maybe that point just below your belly button. And then you just take a gentle breath in through your nose and basically, you know, focus on a count of four just to occupy the mind's focus and attention while relaxing the body as fully as you can. And you just take that nice gentle breath in through the nose, two, three, four, pause, hold the breath at the top. And then you exhale out through the nose, two, three, four, pause, hold at the bottom. And then you repeat inhaling that side one, two, three, four, pause, hold. That's the second side. Exhaling two, three, four. That ends up being three. Slight pause and hold. 
And you just continue to repeat that cycle while counting and relaxing the body while touching the tongue to the palate of the mouth. And what that does is it turns off the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight systems in the nervous system, fight or flight mechanisms in the brain. And it turns on the parasympathetic nervous system that rest, digest and rejuvenate system. And the byproduct of that is a couple of key things. Number one, you're going to access a sense of kind of what I think of as centered peace or calm the longer you do the breath. And it's sort of like, you know, I used to be a baseball player and, you know, you'd go to the batting cages and we would hit hundreds and hundreds of balls, you know, a couple of days a week so that when we go to play the game, hopefully we can hit the ball, we can do well. So if you do that exercise of breathing for just 20 minutes every day, then when you end up in a stress situation, the kids are losing it in the backseat of the car, you feel overwhelmed, you feel anxious, you feel agitated, and you just need to center really fast. At that point, you just touch the tongue to the palate of the mouth, take a deep breath in through the nose. And by the time you get to the bottom of your exhale, you'll literally feel the nervous system shift and relax and go back to that parasympathetic you know, state where now you can be patient with the kids. You can have compassion. You can be you know, a little bit more at peace. Or if you're in a board meeting and, you know, executives and you're talking about what to do with billions of dollars, it's going to affect tens of thousands of lives. And, you know, you're getting a little heated or something like that. Again, nobody needs to know you're doing it. You can take that one breath in and out and just find that center that you need to take that moment and think what's the best action I can take. And it'll be there for you when you need it. Yeah. You say baseball and I go straight to, I just interviewed somebody, David Romanelli. He talked about being a kid at the Dodger game when Kurt Gibson hit the home run. It's the home run. It's a classic baseball moment in the ninth inning. And he talked about where he was sitting during that moment. And he was sitting in the back seat of his dad's car because his dad left 20 minutes early because he wanted to <laughs> beat traffic. And he talked about life being moments. Yeah. Life is moments and yeah. not wanting to miss moments. And it had quite an impact on him. And he has all these meditation things. But anyway, that took me to like, we want to be present for moments. And your training would definitely help with that. Do you have a message of hope you want to give? The two things that I would say, you know, that I constantly think of regularly is number one, you know, truly give yourself permission you know, to take a little bit of time and really design the life you want to live, right? Think out into the future and, you know, how do I want to feel? Who's the person I want to become? What do I want to create? And like, if you can see it in your mind, if you can truly get it clear and you can believe it's possible and you're willing to take action toward it, it's absolutely possible, number one. And number two, remember, everything is created from the inside out. And so if we invest a little bit in our emotional, mental training, there's no reason you can't bridge the gap to just about anything. Oh, I love that. And is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have that we're going to get off and you're going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe Lauren didn't ask me that. Is there anything I should have <laughs> asked you that I didn't know to ask? I think we have covered some good territory. Okay, I just want to be sure. Well, thank you so much for being a guest today on 52 Weeks of Hope. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and take with you Joey's messages of self-development, meditation, and creative curiosity. Such great messages to take into your week ahead. Be sure to tune in next week for another empowering episode all about overcoming challenges, confidence, and how to take that next step staying aligned with your true self. It's a great episode. You don't want to miss that one. I know you're going to love it. Be sure to get on the email list so you don't miss anything. We have a couple of member-only specials beginning, so you definitely want to be in the know. Just go to the website 
website at 52weeksofhope.com and you'll get on the email list there. Also, if you have any messages for me, you can just send them to me on the website. And anybody who was part of the email list got a few special messages in the email this week. So you definitely want to be in the know. You want to be on the list. There's also a new quiz, When Do You Self-Sabotage, on the website. So check that out. And that's at 52weeksofhope.com. Be sure also if you want to join the Facebook group, that's a safe space where we share with each other over there. If you're enjoying the podcast, share the love and tell two of your friends. I'm Lauren Abrams. Thanks for listening.